Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning, Covenant. So good to see you. My name is Joel. If you're a guest with us, I'm one of the pastors. I want to invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 4. And this is my first opportunity being in the pulpit to preach God's Word, to look at you and say Happy New Year. How many of you have had a good 2023 so far? I know it's just we're 15 days in, right? You're like, it's it's kind of like the, the annual equivalent of I'm having a good day so far, but I haven't gotten out of bed yet. Uh, and maybe that's the way you feel. How many of you, 2021, 2022, were the sort of year that you're not announcing or declaring anything? You just kind of try to sneak in the back door this year and hope nothing breaks, right? It's just been one of those things. Here's the thing about this time of year. There's probably not a time of year in which humanity is not more greatly oriented toward the future than when we start a new year. And that really is a most attractive prospect for somebody like me. I tend to think about the future a lot. It's not right or wrong. It's just sort of the way God wired me and designed me. Sometimes it can drive my wife nuts. Anybody else live with a futurist who's always trying to, you know, I'm doing that now. Like, hey, baby, when, hey, where will we live in retirement? And like, if God grants us health and, and life and the ability to continue to serve him globally, like what airports would be the best to live next door to? And we fly out of those kind of things. And she's like, baby, I'm just trying to get the kids not to plunk high school right now. You, you, you ever live with somebody like that? So on behalf of futurists, let me apologize that sometimes we can be a little bit frustrating. And for my kids, well, it doesn't frustrate or exasperate them, but they do think I'm weird because I'll think about the future relative to their lives as well. Now, we're not one of those families who has a lifestyle that is conducive to having dinner together every night. If you are able to do that, I think that's wonderful. You should continue that. Uh, for us, that's, that's a little more rare than nightly or even weekly, really, but we do get in the dining room and we get around that table a lot, especially when our adult son comes home and we're celebrating a holiday. And oftentimes around that table, I will look at my children that just feel like 15 minutes ago I was still changing all of their diapers, and I'm looking at them kind of coming into their element and learning who they are, and then I'll start thinking about the future. And when this boy thinks about the future, I'm thinking about the next 20 years. And I will ask them, hey, where do you think God's going to have you in 20 years? 20 years from now, when it's 2043. Now, my kids, especially my two younger ones, haven't lived 20 years yet. So it's understandable that someone who hasn't even lived that length of time might not even really have a category for thinking that far ahead. And that's when they roll their eyes and look at me and go, Dad, you're just weird. But what I want them to, to think about, I want to encourage them to think about this. 20 years from now, when their old man is 70, and hopefully still alive, depending on what I do with bacon, they are going to be 42, 37, and 33. So where will they be? What will become of them? I, I want them to think about those things. Those, thing, those are good things to think about. And then those are the things that will help you walk back into, okay, what do I need to do tomorrow? And what do I do the next week? And, and all of that. So I love talking about the future. This is one of those times where I think it's time for us to talk about our future. You ever wonder about that? Here's what I believe. 
Our pastors, deacons, elders, we've been in prayer over the last three months or so. We have some teams that have been planning. You've probably already gotten something in your inbox if you're part of the Covenant family or if you're just on our mailing list to tell you about a meeting we're having two weeks from today where we're going to unpack that future, pull back the curtain, and talk about it a little bit with you. It's not a big thing. We're not, let me just go ahead and give you a, a let me go ahead and give you a preview. We're not about to build anything, Okay. So if that's the thing you're worried about going into debt, no, not doing that. And if it's the thing that gets you excited, sorry to disappoint, all right? It's not going to be anything like that. It's actually going to be bigger. It's going to be focused on the kingdom of God and what it looks like for this church over the next several years of its life to focus on the kingdom of God and, and how that needs to inform everything from our budgeting to the, what our administrative structure needs to look like over the next few years. And here's what I believe as I talk to our elders and fellow pastors, our deacons, our finance team, our leaders. Moreover, as I hear what God has said from this pulpit while I've been out since Christmas through our other pastors, I'm absolutely convinced that 2023 is going to be a pivotal year. I can't tell you exactly how that's going to be. I can't predict. I'm not a prophet, the son of a prophet, with any degree of accuracy, exactly what it's going to be. But I'm absolutely convinced the more experience I have and the more I get into God's Word and, and the more I just sort of pay attention, honestly, to the things that are going on around our church family, the more convinced I am that 20 years from now, wherever we are, we're going to look back on 2023 and we're going to go, that was the year. That was the hinge on which swung the future of Covenant Church and all of the people in it. And so we want to spend some time asking this really simple question, where will that leave us 20 years from now? And it starts with this five-week series on surrender, waving the white flag, as it were. I'm just going to give everything to Jesus. And right on the heels of that, we're going to do 12 weeks together in the Minor Prophets, those 12 men who spoke during the mostly the post-exilic period of Israel's history, what do they have to teach us about repentance? This challenge to turn from what you're doing to something new, this challenge to turn from the thing that you think is important to the thing that God is telling you is the better thing. And we're going to be learning from all of these texts of Scripture, where is God calling us and where will these actions take us as the body of Christ? And here's what I think is going to happen. The Lord is going to transform some lives this year. Some of you, just a few years from now, and you don't even realize it, you're going to be pastors. Some of you, just a few years from now, are going to be deacons. Some of you are going to continue working in your own domain of expertise. Maybe you're an engineer, maybe you're a physician, maybe you're a school teacher, and you've had no idea. You hear Pastor Joel talk all the time about how God wants to use you and your profession. Guys who do what I do for a living are supposed to be the midwives, not the star of the show, giving birth to what God is doing in the lives of the whole church, and God calls the whole church to his kingdom purposes and not merely those of us who have a microphone and a spotlight once every seven days. What's that going to look like? And, and in spite of all the time I've spent talking about that, you're still sitting there going, yeah, I don't think that's me. God's going to transform that way of thinking in you. I really believe with all my heart that's going to happen. Some of you are already serving in critical ministries in, in pretty hard areas around Jefferson and Berkeley County, some areas where our church is at work, and you're serving faithfully on those leadership teams, and you're looking at people right now who are struggling with addiction, who are struggling with all manner of family dysfunction, and you wonder to yourself, you believe in the gospel, which is the whole reason you work with those people, and you're patient with them, and what you don't realize is not only is the Lord going to deliver them, but you're going to see them step up into critical roles. That's the power of the gospel. 
But the question is, what do we do today? Where, where do we need to be faithful to Jesus today in 2023 to lead us in that direction? You're going to be led into that future by steps you will be led by God's Spirit to take in the coming weeks. Here's why I say that. Big stuff almost always starts with small stuff. And not big flash in the pan, kind of just being faithful, doing as Elizabeth Elliot used to say, the next right thing, continuing to be faithful to the Lord, continuing to give him your yes. And so we're going to take the first weeks of this year to ask a question. And we're going to do it this morning from a text that I've preached from before, but I'm taking a bit of a different angle on it now because I want to ask you this. When you strip everything else away, what's at the core of who we are and what it means when Jesus says, follow me? What's he calling us to surrender? What does surrender look like? And I, I start today with just a really personal but simple question. Are we followers? Are we followers? What comes to your mind when, when someone says the word Christian? I'm sure you have an opinion. You go out in the, if you go to Shepherdstown today and, well, I'd sort of say out on the street, it's a little cold for that. Maybe go into some of those restaurants and, and just ask 10 people, what is a Christian? You're probably going to get 14, 15 different opinions out of 10 people. Some of you may connect that to some punctiliar moment in time when you got saved, and, and you should. And you should be thankful for that born-again experience, for what God has done in your life. Others of you, if you're here this morning, might be like so many people that we're honored to host almost every Sunday who would say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, or I'm not too sure that I'm a Christian. I'm not real sure where I stand in relation to Jesus. I'm not sure what I believe about him. I'm here because people were nice to me, because they ministered to me, because Black Dog Coffee's out in the lobby and it's really good, or because my wife made me come. And we're happy to have you here too. But that may be your disposition right now. Some of you still may say, you know, Christians are like a guy I talked to not too many weeks ago. I just think they're all a bunch of judgmental moralists who think they're the only ones going to heaven. And I don't want anything to do with that. And while we're debating the meaning and perception of this word Christian, here, here's an interesting fact you may want to know. The very first followers of Jesus did not call themselves Christian. Did you know that? The earliest followers of Jesus did not claim that name for themselves. They had that name assigned to them, and we don't even find that word. In fact, until we get to Acts chapter 11, it was given to them by people who didn't like them and didn't like their faith. And so they derogatorily, with a lot of sarcasm and sass, just referred to them as little Christs. That's where the name Christian came from. Overwhelmingly, when someone who follows Jesus is described in the Scriptures, the word that's used is not Christian. The word is disciple. Now, it's not wrong to use the C word. You can still call yourself a Christian, but, but here's the thing. This is where I'm going with this particular message this morning. The word Christian is used a grand total of three times in the New Testament. The word disciple is used 281 times. So if we're going to unpack what it means to surrender and to follow, it, it behooves us to really look at this word disciple and spend some time unpacking it. And, and that's where Matthew 4 can be very helpful to us. This story begins in verse 18, and we're told the following from God's word. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers 
of men. Now, I got a little confession to make to you. When I was around eight years old, I don't know if there's any eight-year-olds in the audience today, but you're probably more mature than your pastor was when I was your age because my Sunday school teachers actually taught me this story, and I can remember it. I have this vague memory. They use this thing called a flannel graph. Anybody remember those things? Okay? Now, let me say up front, I don't blame my teachers for the foolishness that I'm about to describe to you. Okay? They were godly men and women. They taught me the stories. Those stories were retained in my memory throughout my adult life and throughout my ministry because of those godly men and women. Just chalk it up to Joel's spiritual maturity as an eight-year-old, or or spiritual immaturity, rather. But but here's the picture that I got of this story, and I, I just this is one of the reasons I just didn't understand it. That you got a bunch of guys sitting around, and they've got a fishing business. I don't understand why they didn't use Zebco 33s. That was my first question. They're using nets. They're wearing nightgowns, Birkenstock sandals, and and, and so they're they're just kind of going about their day. And then all of a sudden, this other guy walks up wearing another kind of nightgown. This one kind of blazing white, and he's got this sort of purple Miss America sash on. He's got long flowing hair. Kind of looks like Fabio just stepped off the cover of a Nora Roberts novel. And and he with with a Jedi type power says, "You remember this? These aren't the droids you're looking for." It, it was just kind of like, follow me. And they all just kind of like Igor and Frank, yes, master, yes, master. So that, that made no sense to me. I struggle with that even through my call to ministry. Some of you follow my wife on social media, and she outed me yesterday in a little bit of my call story, asked my permission to do that. And I said, absolutely, you can turn it loose. Let them, let them know that I had a crisis of faith, all of it, a lot of it at least, uh, attached back to that moment where I just, I just could not in, in any earthy way connect myself to, to what seemed to me to be a story from outer space. I didn't get it until I understood the background behind what was going on here. So I want to share a little bit of that with you just by way of introduction, so that this doesn't seem weird to you either, because when you understand the history behind the moment Matthew describes here, this moment makes a lot more sense, and it is also a lot more powerful. So here's the background, okay? All of this happened in a culture where every little Hebrew boy went to Torah school. The first five books of what you and I call the, the Old Testament, and they studied it in depth. It started around the age of five, and for the first five years, that, that was kind of the, the first round. So no matter who you were, if you were a, a young male living in Israel at this time, you would go to Torah school, you would spend your first five years there. And then when everybody turned age 10, there was kind of a culling of the herd. And roughly 80% of those young men were cut from the team which meant they went back home to start a trade, probably underneath their fathers. Nothing dishonorable about that. Actually, uh, some of our biggest supporters in ministry for our first 15 years roughly here in in the mid-Atlantic when we first came was a guy who by his own admission, he just said he was a businessman, very successful businessman, godly man. He won a lot of people to Jesus as well. And he told me once, he said, I spent a semester in seminary and, and it took a semester for me to realize God wasn't calling me to ministry, it was my mama. And lifelong ministry ain't going to last. Mama's precious, but lifelong ministry's not going to last with just mama, right? It's got to be the Lord. There's nothing dishonorable about that. And at the age of 10, the rabbis would kind of make that call and say to that other 80%, go home, go to your fathers, contribute to society, do your thing. The other 20% would continue on for another seven years. And then at the age of 17, there was another kind of crisis moment 
when another large percentage of them were cut from the team. But the first step in this process is they would, they would bring these young 17-year-old men in and they would ask them two questions. Here's the first one. Do you feel called to a vocation in religious studies? Right? We want to know, do you, do you sense that this is what God has created you to do? And here's the second question, even more important. Can you find a rabbi who finds you worthy to move on? That was a, a, an even more important question because the rabbis were really, really picky. Now, I just started teaching a philosophy and worldview class at Anderson University in my home state. I teach it online because the main campus is 500 miles away. Those students, I will likely, about 95% of them, never even meet them face-to-face. 16 weeks from now, I will dismiss them from my class, pass or fail, and they will go off, and I, I may or may not ever see them again. That's not the educational model that we're talking about here. These rabbis were picky about these students because they're not just going to be in your class for 16 weeks. They're going to follow you morning, noon, and night. They're going to try to imitate not just your decisions and your theology, but your mannerisms, the way you answer particular questions, how you handle various situations. And so as those young men prepare for the possibility of being matched with a rabbi, they knew this that years into this preparation, the greatest compliment you could ever receive from anybody in, in culture at large would be this one. You have the dust of your rabbi all over you. You know what that meant? It was a metaphor. It meant you follow him so closely that when he walks, whatever it is sticks to the bottom of his shoe gets thrown back and up and it covers you. That's how closely you walk and that was the goal, and that was the, the goal of these rabbis. And, and what you were aiming for, furthermore, in this whole process of discipleship really was summarized succinctly in this really cool Hebrew word. The word is shmicha. All right, look at your neighbor and say, shmicha. Not nearly enough of you did that. Look at your neighbor one more time and say, shmicha. There you go. That's right. I just wanted to see if you'd do it. It it's a fun word. Yeah, you, you know, it's, it's kind of like lickety split or something. It's one of those fun words to say. Um, but let me tell you what it means. It means authority. That guy has the shmicha. means this guy has authority. And, and that's what everybody, I mean, the, the entire rabbinic community was aiming for this. And those rabbis, they were very rare. In the ancient world, there may have been no more than about a dozen of them. We get a couple of their names in the New Testament, Hillel and Gamaliel and others. These were the authorities to interpret the texts for the Jewish community. The closest uh, equivalent we might have in our own day is to say these were not the Pastor Joels who get up and teach and preach God's Word. These were the guys who write the scholarly commentaries that Joel consults before he gets up here. These are the guys with the authority. You look to the authority. That's who these were, masters of the Torah who interpreted the text. And the process of becoming this kind of rabbi, well, let's just say it was a very exclusive club that was very hard to get into. So that's the background. Okay, you got that? That brings us back to Matthew 4. These guys are fishermen, which means at some point along in their lives, they got cut from the team. They were told, go back and work with your, your father. And then comes Jesus, who another gospel tells us at age 12 
knows the Torah so well, he's actually in the temple correcting the religious leaders. His teaching involves phrases like, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. People would often ask him, and we see that those accounts in the New Testament as well, by what authority do you do this? By what authority do you say this? And he always refers back to himself, which means Jesus presumes shmiha. I've got it already. I don't have to ask anybody for it. It's mine. And Jesus chooses these fishermen. Why are they fishermen? Because at some point they got cut from the team. So here's the big idea now that you read this text and you understand. When Jesus assembles his force that will eventually plant the foundation for the apostolic movement and the New Testament church that you and I sit here as the legatees of today, he chooses guys that had already been cut from the team. That's the idea. And I want you to see some principles that flow from this story. Because some of you are sitting there right now and you're thinking, I'm not qualified. Well, of course you're not qualified. Neither am I. Not when the call first comes. The issue is, are you prepared to surrender? Because if you're prepared to surrender, Jesus is prepared to qualify. He's prepared to take you to the next level. But it's going to require the following. First of all, we see that Jesus, when he chooses those who will follow him, he does not choose the best. He chooses the willing. Verse 18 again says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So now, with with all this background we just discussed, I want to let you just take a moment, let the, the force of those words sink in. Guys that have already been cut, they have this man come to them. His reputation is well known, and they say to, he says to them, follow me. What, what are the response would there be except the one that we read about here? Years later, Paul will express this value as well to another group of people who seem unqualified, the church at Corinth. These folks had no Jewish background. They had no background in Torah. They were coming from a completely pagan, not even monotheistic understanding of reality. They come to faith in Christ. They come into the church. And that whole church, if you read just 1 Corinthians, you recognize what a jacked up mess this whole thing is. There is sexual immorality of the kind that would make Jerry Springer blush. There are people that they're having to guard against because every time they put the table in front to have the Lord's Supper, some of those folks sit there and all they can see is an open bar and an opportunity to get drunk. And here's what Paul says to those people, knowing full well the power of the gospel and the ability of the Lord Jesus through his Holy Spirit to transform these people and redeem everything about them that was so messed up. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You know how Paul knew that? Because he'd experienced it himself and because he followed a rabbi who did exactly that. Jesus, I don't know if you recognize this or not, came into the ancient world at a time where if you wanted wisdom, if you wanted knowledge, if you wanted power, you could get it and you knew where to get it. You knew. All the knowledge of the world was beginning to concentrate in Egypt. There was a library, the the ultimate repository of all exhaustive human knowledge that that had found itself and all those resources gathered at Alexandria. If you want knowledge, you go to Egypt, not to Israel. All of the great philosophers, the great ideas, some of those ideas that even helped found our own republic that we're living under right now, ideas that we continue to discuss and debate today started 2,000 years ago in Athens on Mars Hill. 
And if you wanted power, you want to take over the structure, then you need to go to Rome, the Washington, D.C. of the ancient world. Jesus comes into that environment, and this is what you need to know to encourage you today. If you're sitting there thinking, I'm not worthy, I don't know if he could ever use me. When Jesus first came, he passes over Socrates and Herodotus and Julius Caesar, and he goes to the Sea of Galilee, finds a bunch of rednecks on the beach, and he said, those are my boys. That's who I'm going to run with. That's who I'm going to get to follow me. And so if you're here this morning and you're saying, man, I, I, just, I just don't know. I don't know. You need to recognize there wasn't a single rabbi in this group. There wasn't a single young man who had not been cut from the team. And this is the principle we find. It's not about how educated or eloquent I am. It's not about how skilled you are. It's about whether or not you are prepared to say yes to him before you even hear the question. That, that's, the, that's the bottom line. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. I have a church planter friend of mine in the New Orleans area down in Louisiana. Man, I'm thinking of New Orleans quite finally today because it's cold outside, isn't it? And it's 80 degrees in January down there, which, which helps kind of fill the backstory of, of what I'm about to tell you. He had a young lady call him one night. She and her husband were a part of this church. They'd been believers for about a year. And, and she said, Pastor, I just I want to check in with you, which, by the way, is a wise thing. Check, check in with your, your spiritual leaders. Let them guide you. Don't go rogue. But, but what was so encouraging, he said, about this phone call was, was what this woman had already done to be obedient to Jesus. She said, we've got this couple that lives across the hall from us our apartment complex. And for the last couple of years, we've been really close friends with them. And we know they're not followers of Jesus. Uh, we know their, their lives are, are really less than what God would want for them. But, but we're prepared to just love them regardless. We're going to share the gospel with them wherever we have the opportunity. And we're just going to love them. And pastor, last night they were waiting on us after, again, two years of friendship. We got home from dinner. They've been waiting. They invited us into their apartment. And they said, something has happened to us while you all these conversations you guys have been having with us about Jesus, that while we were waiting to you, for you to get home from dinner, we read all four Gospels, and we want to follow Jesus. That's what we want. And so this young lady and her husband helped this man and the woman he was living with talk about what it means and learn what it means to turn away from your sins and put your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and his bodily resurrection. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then came the part that made her a little bit nervous. After that happened, this young couple looked at them and said, while we were waiting on you to get home from dinner, we also kept going. And there's this book called Acts, and we read enough that we don't understand everything we read, but we know this, we should be baptized now. And so this, is, this was the question that she called to ask her pastor. She said there was an apartment swimming pool. We went down there. It was kind of late at night. But there were still people down there barbecuing, eating, laying out by the pool, taking a swim. We got them in the edge of the shallow end of the pool. We called people together that were interested in knowing what we were about to do. We shared the gospel with whoever would listen, and then we baptized both of them. And I just wanted to make sure that it was okay. So I want you to hear on the record what this pastor says about that because it's pretty much the same thing my colleague said. Give me a thousand people like that young woman who just say yes. And that's what he did. And then he said, look, you, you've actually, you've obeyed the Great Commission. You've done, I just, is there any way I can help you? 
And she said, well, as a matter of fact, Pastor, you actually can. Because as I mentioned before, this couple's not married. They've been living together for several years. And, and they've also realized that, that they need to make that right. And so I told them before I called you, I said, well, we're part of a church family. And, and I, I think our pastor would probably officiate that wedding. Do you mind doing that? This is what happens when you simply say yes. When you simply say, I, this is what I'm going to do. Like, did, it, did I do the wrong thing? No. Here's what God wants to use you like that in your family, in your workplace. He doesn't need your ability, but he does want your obedience. God doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Here, here's a further truth. God chooses us. We don't choose him. Verse 19, and he said to them, follow me. He, he makes the first move. You remember how this all worked in the ancient world with your rabbi? You have to choose your rabbi, and then you got to sit there and hope against hope that he chooses you back. This isn't how salvation works. It's not how salvation, how, how discipleship works. Jesus makes the first move. Follow me. You're like, is he, how do I know he's saying that to me? I just told you. Look at Matthew 4, God's word just told you. He's saying this to you. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that selection is what gives you confidence. So often we, we go through hard times when we're serving the Lord. Sometimes we go through what in the South we used to call dry spells. You go a long, long time, you don't see any fruit, you wonder if it's doing any good. Like taking a multivitamin. You pop it, get up the next day, pop it, get up the next day, pop it. 30 days later, you go back to GNC or Walmart or wherever you buy another bottle. Three months and 100 bucks later, you're like, this isn't doing me any good. I don't feel different at all. How many of y'all, you don't have to raise your hand, but but sometimes your spiritual life feels that way. I'm reading my Bible daily. I'm praying. I'm, I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to do the next right thing. Here's what keeps you going. Not the fruit that you sometimes see and sometimes don't see, but this thought, my rabbi chose me. My rabbi has chosen. I'm not saying fruit's completely unimportant. We're going to get to that in a moment. But fruit should not drive the decision of whether you keep going or whether you quit. What drives that is the understanding that I am chosen. I am beloved of God. My rabbi chose me. Jesus chooses them when they're not even looking for them. It wasn't even on their radar. These guys are like some of you are right now. It wasn't even on their radar that they could be followers at this level. And he would remind them of this later in the Gospels. You have not chosen me. I have chosen you. So think about that with reference to wherever you are in your life right now, whatever stage of life you might be in, whatever difficulty you may be encountering for a moment. Because there have been times, for example, in my marriage, actually we just had one of those about a week ago. We got into a fight. It was over something stupid. We're all cool now. But, but I remember in the aftermath of that thinking to myself, as I have so often thought in the last 29 years of being married, you know what? If if Jesus were married to my wife, he'd do so much better than I would. And it's, it's true. It's true. At work, you know, if Jesus were in this job, he would do this better. If Jesus were the father of my children, he'd do this right. There's so much guesswork with my kids. I don't know from day to day if, I've, if I'm directing them in the right way. I don't know why, man, he would do such a better job. And while all of that is true, that is not the way the Lord Jesus himself has set this up. He put you in that spot. 
He's not going to do that for you. He's going to do it through you. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Sometimes I get requests to pray for family members, colleagues. I took a call just yesterday about someone who's about soon to lose a work colleague to a very progressive disease. Would you pray for him? Here's, and then oftentimes I will I'll hear their story. Here's how I have ministered to them. And that encourages my soul as a pastor to just know how God's people are are ministering to other people. But sometimes I get this. I go, Pastor, I just wish you just wish you could have been there. You would have known exactly what to say. You would have handled this so much better than I would have. And I, I usually have a couple of things I want to say in response to that. The first is, I just don't think that's true. I don't have that relationship that you have. I don't know the situation that you have. I don't, there are so many ways in which that's, that's just not true. I wouldn't have done a better job than you. The Lord put you there, not me. And by the way, that, that comes to your children as well. And I love investing in your kids' lives. Also, a couple times a year, I'll take off from here. Pastor Chris or one of our other elders will preach, and I'll be back here with your kids. They need to know their pastor. That's important. That's really important. And I want them to know that. But let me tell you what absolutely will not work. You bringing your kid in, sitting them in my office, pointing at me and looking at them and staring them down and say, all right, listen to what this man tells you. All right, Pastor Joel, straighten them out. You just completely neutered Pastor Joel's ability to do anything in that moment. I don't know if you realize it or not. I mean, if it's a 13 or 14-year-old kid, that's the moment I look at him and go, so uh, I don't know, you want to talk about Nintendo or something? Because nothing else is happening, not in that meeting, right? What, what drives that? It's, it's, well, maybe somebody that knows a little more than me, or maybe there's somebody that, God's put you where you are. His desire is to use you. His desire is for you to say yes. Your pastors are delighted, honored even, to be able to help and to guide you through that. Of course. But when I get that, I'm like, I am absolutely certain God has chosen you to be in that place in that time. He chooses those who give him an unqualified yes. He chooses you, not you, him. And then this third thing will help you get focus in the midst of all that. Our primary calling is actually to be with him. Two really simple words in verse 19. Follow me. Follow me. The aim is for you and me to be conformed into the image of Christ. Right? Now, these men eventually brought about global change, didn't they? Global shifting, but not before an awful lot of suffering, and not before God didn't work very, very deeply performing spiritual surgery, as it were, in their own hearts. And that's our mistake, we think, particularly in a Western world that puts so much value on accomplishment and, and meeting objectives and, and having power and all of those things. We, we tend to think, well, if... If I don't see tangible evidence of the kingdom, then that must mean God's not moving. It may be time for me to just give up. And the fact is, Jesus never once called anybody to produce results. He does that. And he does it through you obeying this one simple command, follow me. The aim is to be close to Jesus. He didn't tell these men where or what or how or when, but he did tell them who. He pointed to himself. Because if you're a disciple... Remember, remember the, the rabbi Talmud 
relationship, that's the first assignment. You become like your rabbi. You soak in his word. You memorize his word. The foundation is not results. You, call a, you start a small group. You call a prayer meeting. Three people show up. And you think, because, and I'm sorry, I mean, our, we, we have a great atmosphere here. I love our, our, our execution on and focus on excellence, especially on Sunday morning. But sometimes I think it can be kind of a handicap for us that, that every ancillary ministry we start in this church has to have that kind of quality, and, it, and it's just not true. But it may, sometimes I think it leads some of us to think, well, there's, there's three people here, and I don't know where the other 30 are, and you're all obsessed over that and wondering, should this even be a thing? Mean, meanwhile, there's three people staring at you going, we're going to start praying? There's three people staring at you going, are we going to open up God's Word? Are we going to have a discussion? Are we going to grow as disciples? The aim is simply obedience. Follow me. He produces the results. And the aim is not starting with me, by the way. What, what do you want your obituary to say? That's really the question here, isn't it? What do I want it to say? Am I so fleshly that, that what I want it to emphasize is how effective I was or wasn't? How large the church grew to? How many books I sold? How many sermons I preached? Because that is not the spirit of the New Testament. The spirit of the New Testament is every single one of us, starting with me and moving through this congregation to touch each and every one of you, that your goal, your overwhelming goal should be this, that they would say the dust of her rabbi was all over her. The dust of his rabbi was all over him. You ever been in the presence of somebody like that? And you didn't even know what their accomplishments were in the world, but you walk away saying, man, I got to be next to that guy. I got to be next to that woman because they walk with Jesus. Who's been through experiencing God? You know, Henry Blackaby, who authored that series 30 plus years ago, never pastored a church with more than 200 people in it. Never. But every time you were in his presence, you knew you were in the presence of somebody that walked with Jesus. Guys, that's the goal. That's the goal. We're bringing church planners into this building from all over the country two weeks from today. And you know what we're going to tell them? Apart from all the, yeah, okay, this is how you draw a crowd. And this is how, all that's important, all right? Don't, don't be stupid. Don't be like, well, we're not about the numbers and have that be an excuse for not doing anything. But that's not your focus. Your focus is that the dust of your rabbi covers you. Your focus is that you have been with Jesus. That's success. And that's the goal of being a disciple. And that is the disposition, pastor, non-pastor, of anyone who is fully surrendered to him. They're not looking for something tangible to demonstrate. They're just, they just long for the presence of God in their life. That's, that's what they long for. And so follow me means get close to me. I want to follow you so closely, so deliberately, that everything on the bottom of your feet sprays back and up and covers me. In our small groups, our men's and women's ministry, the trainings that we offer, we start our pastoral residency back up tonight at 4.30. I'm looking forward to gathering with those guys. That's the goal. Because if we have people saturated with the dust of their rabbi, the rabbi will take care of the rest of this. That's what we want. Now, here's the fourth principle. 
And this one, this may be the hardest one of all. You may have to leave it all. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Again in verse 22, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. These two things represented the most significant things in their lives, their occupation and their family. First century Judaism, that was it. Those were the top two. And Matthew tells us here, Jesus takes precedent over both. Now, most of us are never going to feel the full weight of that because we're not actually going to have to give up our fathers and mothers. I know people who have. My wife and I both know people in other parts of the world who when they became Christian, their family said, if you get baptized, that is the end of your relationship with us. We are cutting you off. Some of you may have to make, maybe, maybe not quite that dramatic of a decision, but some of you may have to do some other stuff. You may have to rethink your career. You may have to transfer your job to where there's a new church or where God may be calling you to a different city. I just had an email exchange just this week with a precious family in this church, and they're about to relocate. They're going to move like three states away. It breaks my heart on one hand because I love them and I don't want to see them go. It excites me on the other because they're asking all the right questions. Where's the church that we're going to be a part of, and how are we going to leverage our, our professions for the, the sake of the kingdom, and, and what's the influence that God is having us to calling us to have in relationship to the church that we find on the city that we're moving to. And they're ready to leave this area behind if that's what it takes to say yes to Jesus. What's, what's it going to take for you? What's he asking you to give up? Maybe you're in college or high school right now. There will be moments coming in the very near future for you, some really significant ones, where you're going to have to decide what holds sway over your life. My wife and I have friends serving in Southeast Asia who 20 years ago were told by their supposedly Christian parents, don't go. We don't want you to go. We don't want you living over there. We don't want you taking our grandchildren over there. Now, here's the thing. It, it, this is the danger, by the way, of being in a church that does confess the Bible as the Word of God, takes it seriously, is that our children might one day take it seriously. So when we talk about God's call to the globe, God's call to the nations, God's call to leverage your talents and skills and abilities and serve the world that Jesus died to save, yeah, we mean what we say around here. So if you're a parent or a grandparent and that upsets you, you, you probably ought to go into a closet somewhere and deal with whatever's going on in here right now, lest you commit the horrible sin of getting in between your children or grandchildren and the call of God on their life. Don't do that. God may be calling. Because we, again, we went to seminary with, with families like that. Our parents have all but disowned us because we're going to Southeast Asia. Like, they know there's airplanes, right? They can come visit you. Well, they don't want to come over there. Why? Well, they don't like those people. They don't like that country. They've never met those people. They've never been to that country. We don't know. All we know is Jesus called and we said yes. So we're going. Some of us are going to have to give up some stuff. You might even have to give up your life. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but I'll tell you, he's worth it. Say yes to him. Say yes to him. 
even if he tells you to leave it all behind. I'll tell you, we have a, the 21st century in this part of the world has made the gospel all about what I get, which means that so many churches are filled with unconverted, unregenerate people always asking what's in it for me and what about my rights and never understanding that when you follow Jesus, the first thing he gives you is your own cross. But it's a glorious thing to bear. It's an honor. It's a privilege to bear it. Here's principle number five. He commands us to reproduce. Verse 19, I will make you fishers of men. Again, it's not all about the evidence. It's not all about the tangible fruit. But Jesus' primary plan for making disciples really is you, just being an influence. The further we go in history, the more I realize it's not going to be in big crusades. It's not going to be in Christian concerts. It's not even going to be in this pulpit. It's going to be in the people out here, leveraging your skills, your talents for the kingdom of God and talking about that kingdom and its king. His plan is you. It's not something. It's not some program. It is someone. And by God's grace, we want to see you over the next 12 months develop the capacity to become a reproducing Christian, that you would walk so closely with Jesus that the dust from his feet sprays back and up, and it covers you. That's what the three circles is all about. If you're part of a small group, you're going to be invited to be a part of that for several weeks and just learn alongside of the rest of our church family. It's a training we've done before. It's a training. If you've been through our Discover course, you, you know, I kind of give you a crash course in that. Number one, because we want to make sure you actually know Jesus. I don't want you joining a church not knowing Jesus. What a tragedy. But also, so that you can now take this instrument that we give you and talk about Jesus with your friends, your neighbors, and, and your coworkers. And so we have a church-wide small group emphasis that will be launching at the end of January on that, all because Jesus told us this was the thrust of his ministry. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we're going to equip you how to share your story, how to connect your story with the story of Jesus' death and resurrection and explain to others what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But the first thing that is warranted is a yes. Before you even know what the question is, before you even know what he's asking of you, what would be the effect on the tri-state area to see that happen? in the life of our church, that the people in front of me and the people watching from home and the people in the last service would be the kind of people who would give themselves to Christ in such a way that they look more like him, that a year from now, me and you and everybody else in this room has now conformed more so to the image of Christ after the pattern of Romans chapter 12. What if, furthermore, those people who are conformed to the image of Christ gather together and they get their focus and they eliminate the distractions that can so often handicap a church and we begin moving forward in such a way that the health and the life of this body more greatly resembles the body of Christ that we see exemplified in the New Testament? And what if, further still, that united, gospel-focused, healthy, growing body of Christ has an impact on some of these at-risk areas and really the whole tri-state area in such a way that 10 years from now everything we see around us from education and healthcare and science and technology and every domain of society looks more like the kingdom of God. That's the call. That's the call. It's not about filling more seats, getting more money, 
building another building. It's about the kingdom of God. One of my mentors said it well. You focus on the church all the time. You get obsessed with all kinds of stuff about the church. You may or may not ever see glimpses of the kingdom. But if you will seek first the kingdom, you will always have a church. Always. And by the way, that wasn't original with him. This is Jesus, Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. What will it cost you? Doesn't matter. It's worth it. What am I going to have to give up? Doesn't matter. It's worth it. What should I be looking for? The dust of my rabbi all over me. What's required? Yes. That's it. That's it. Just, just say yes to him. And I am absolutely convinced, five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out, you're going to look back on 2023 and you're going to go, that was the hinge on which swung my future trajectory. And you know what? The, the things that came after that, it, it, I mean, it wasn't all golden goose eggs. Some of it stunk like really bad. I got to 2025, 2026, and I got the gut punch of my life, and I didn't know what was going to happen. But now I'm in 2043, and I don't regret a thing. Say yes to him today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, which reminds us that these were not special men. These were simply people who willfully submitted and surrendered their all to you. And so, Father, as we prepare to respond to your word, Lord, I just pray that you would lead people to that understanding. Some of them, Lord, are afraid. You have not given us a spirit of fear. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit alleviates that, assuages it, takes it away, removes it as far as the east is from the west. Lord, some of our, the people in front of me are not afraid. They just don't feel worthy. Lord, remind them of the caliber of men that you chose because your desire is to exalt yourself and not us anyway. And so, Lord, may we follow you. And, Lord, I just pray for an eternal, unconditional yes from everyone in front of me. Use this body of believers. May your spirit overwhelm us and guide us as we move into the future together. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.